On the 1st of January 1953, a book was published in Bad Verishofen in Bavaria. It was called, in German of course, 76 Years of My Life. On the cover was a picture of an elderly man smoking a cigar. Well, not much to get your pulses going there. But the American translation, which came out exactly three years later on the 1st of January 1956, was called Confessions of the Old Wizard. Its author was Halmar Schacht. He was the man Adolf Hitler had made Reich finance minister on the very day after he had become Führer. And it was Halmar Schacht who had then tied the Americans up in such skillful financial knots that it was substantially American companies who finished up building Hitler's blitzkrieg machine and keeping it rolling throughout the Second World War. Well, no wonder, looking back, the Americans begrudgingly came to regard Schacht as the old wizard. It's good to see you at the History Café. Thanks for joining us. This is where we come to give a new take on history. We revisit well-known stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look right anymore. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank, and I suppose we have the best job in the world. I think we do. We take the latest research and we ask the questions that nobody else seems to, and we put it all into stories everyone can enjoy. So find yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see where we end up. Forty years ago, the British journalist Charles Hyam stumbled across a network of high-profile American companies that were implicated in the war preparations of Hitler's Third Reich. He called it the Nazi-American money plot. One or two other popular writers, notably Edwin Black, have since made similar claims. As historians, we can take the striking evidence these writers have undoubtedly turned up and try to put it in a historical context. Well, as we've been seeing in our discussions so far, what had happened was that American companies had invested in Germany during the 1920s in what had seemed at the time to be a post-war bonanza. Europe had been completely wrecked by the 1914-18 war, and the Americans had grown very rich, selling things to them and making loans to them. But successive right-wing American governments cooked the golden goose, greedily attempting to extract as much as possible from the old European economies. Well, the result was the Wall Street crash and a series of financial crashes across Europe. From the early 1930s, the Americans found themselves heavily invested in Germany in particular, but quite unable to extract their money. And as we saw in our last discussion, the Third Reich's financial wizard, Helmar Schacht, made very sure that they stayed that way, completely trapped within Germany. Ford Motor Company now found itself having to accept new German government regulations that forced it to use over 90% German materials and to appoint a German majority to its board. Just the start of it. In May 1937, Ford HQ in America had to agree to give up its Danish, Romanian, Bulgarian markets, which were usually supplied from Ford Britain, to Ford Germany. It was all very awkward. But what were they supposed to do, short of walking away from the new and very expensive factory that they built in Cologne between 1929 and 1931, Ford arguably had very little alternative. Schacht not only made it impossible to extract profits from Germany, he also made it very difficult for Germans to import anything. 
but Germany has few raw materials of its own and a war machine needs plenty of them. So Schacht allowed Ford to import foreign rubber for its car tyres, but only on condition that it handed over 30% of the tyres to the government. Well, everybody knew they would end up on army vehicles. So Ford's making tyres for the German army. In 1936, Ford agreed also to import pig iron. Again, on behalf of the government. Well, they used pig iron to make guns. In 1937, Ford HQ in the States agreed to build a new truck factory near Berlin. It was clear to everyone that the factory would be making trucks and aircraft parts for the German military. But the project went ahead and Ford's latest technology went into it. Well, it wasn't just Ford's. After buying the German company Opel in 1929, General Motors became the largest motor manufacturer within Germany. In 1935, the German military demanded that Opel build a new truck factory south of Berlin. Well, it became the largest and most efficient truck factory in Europe, with a workforce of 20,000. Soon, it was selling exclusively to the German armed forces, turning out 24,000 Opel Blitz trucks in 1939 alone. From 1938, it was even making parts for Junkers bombers. This is General Motors. <laughs> well, the plain fact was that General Motors' German profits doubled in 1933 alone and again in 1934. In 1937, it was paying its shareholders 8% dividend, which was the legal maximum. So, when Germany occupied Austria, Czechoslovakia and then part of Poland in 1938-39, its military rolled out in General Motors and Ford cars and trucks. And its planes were using General Motors and Ford parts. They were also burning American fuel. In 1974, a US Senate committee heard that in 1935 and 1936, General Motors had shared its secret patents for synthetic fuel with the German government. Now, this is really important because faced with no oil supplies of its own, it was a key breakthrough for the German war machine. Meanwhile, Standard Oil of New Jersey... So that's SO to the British and Exxon nowadays to the Americans. ...was not only importing oil into Germany but obtained tetraethyl lead from London, an essential additive to gasoline, and imported that into Germany for Luftwaffe planes. So the planes that fought in the Battle of Britain and then the Blitz bombed London were actually running on American fuel. With special additives from London. Absolutely <laughs> <laughs> taken by American companies. So look, was all this just a rather unfortunate spin-off of the Wall Street crash and the clever manipulation of money markets by the Reich's economics minister, Hjalmar Schacht, the old wizard? Well, maybe it was. But historian Nicholas Levis has found that Ford had actually been lobbying for German military work since 1933 when the Nazis came to power. And so had General Motors. It looks as though these companies were not quite the innocent victims of the system that they appear to be. Plenty of American companies like Ford and General Motors seemed to be stuck in Germany in the 1930s, especially because of Schach's ban on exporting any of their profits. Some companies found ways round the system, 
Unilever, the British Dutch firm, for example, invested its German profits in trawlers, oil tankers, whalers and coastal shipping. I suppose it just sailed them away. <laughs> it did, and simply sailed them away. <laughs> Sinclair Oil sold off its German operation, bought a huge quantity of iron pipes with the money and exported them to use in its oil rigs. And General Motors made a token effort to buy up um, German knitting machines and Christmas ornaments. Knitting machines which, and Christmas ornaments? Which it then exported <laughs> to the States in an effort to get their hands on some of their cash. But as you'll imagine, the profits of knitting machines and Christmas ornaments bore no comparison to the money involved in a gigantic car-making operation in Germany. Does make you wonder how serious they were. Well, the alternative was just to invest their profits within Germany itself, which was, of course, what the Nazis Hamaschacht wanted. General Motors invested much of its profits in the German chemical conglomerate IG Farben, which was the company that later produced the gas for the gas chambers. In 1938, ITT bought a 28% share of the German aircraft manufacturer's Fokker Wolf, who were the people who made some of the best fighter planes of the Second World War, fighting against the RAF and, later on, the American Air Force. General Motors had in fact been able to find a way to sell some of its cars abroad for dollars, about $7 million worth. But instead of sending the cash back to the States, it simply sent it back to Germany as reserves for its German operation. So you have to say that for all the complaints about the difficulties of doing business in Hitler's Germany, or perhaps Schach's Germany, the Americans seem strikingly settled there. Historian Charles Cheap has looked, for example, at Norton's of Worcester, Massachusetts, now the world's largest maker of industrial abrasives. Now, Norton's had invested in Germany in the 1920s, quadrupling their workforce in Germany between the 1920s and the end of the 1930s. They'd also complied with the Nazis' tough regulations using local materials and replacing its management with Germans. Well... Now, Norton's in-house patent lawyer, Aldous Higgins, back in Massachusetts, USA, reviewed the German situation in 1938 quite sensibly. Despite all the obstructions and difficulties of the German market, he concluded, however, that it was worth hanging on in there. And he said, the advantages justify our policy and the chances of a successful outcome in those plants are good. This is 1938. The chances of a successful outcome are good. You have to say that some American industrialists actually preferred doing business in Germany under the Nazis. George Moffat was president of the US Corn Products Refining Company. Now, he said in a much quoted article in Fortune magazine in 1933, quotes, in Germany, there is no uncertainty, no political caprice and no nonsense. You have a problem, you go to the government, you get a clear, immediate answer. Whereas in America, you may spend weeks trying to find out where you stand. (laughs) Well, all in all, Fortune's interviewer concluded, Mr. Moffat prefers the tangible, explicit Nazi interference to the half-defined meddling of democracy. Democracy. Well, there you have it. US corn products sounds a pretty small operation, but in fact, it was one of America's largest conglomerates running some of America's most advanced laboratories. And they preferred doing business in Nazi Germany to doing business in America. The closer you look at these American companies, the more it begins to appear that they were very much not just hanging on, waiting for better days. They were exploiting the Nazi decision to go for rearmament for all it was profitably worth. You could almost say 
they were comfortable in Nazi Germany. Well, they certainly were. Ford's profits in Germany quadrupled between 1934 and 1938, importing American pre-made trucks as well as making their own. In fact, four factories worked through the night in preparation for the Nazi occupation of much of Czechoslovakia in 1938. What? In 1945, an investigation found that Ford had in fact been stockpiling German military vehicles in anticipation of the war. In the summer of 1939, American Ford executives had visited their factory in Cologne and they had approved further expansion to the factory. So 1939. Just, not just hanging on in there then. 1939, when war was inevitable, Edsel Ford, Henry Ford's son, wrote to the German management in October 1940. Now, that was after the invasion of Norway, Denmark, Netherlands, Belgium and France. Ford congratulated... This is incredible. Ford congratulated his German management on overseeing Ford interests across Europe. <laughs> For yeah, well, Chicago, in fact, went on sending them materials and machine tools in defiance of the British Royal Naval Blockade, at least into 1941. And then Ford, in neutral Switzerland and Sweden, continued providing parts for the German military throughout the war. This story is now taking a darker turn. Yes, during the 1920s, these American companies had invested innocently enough in Germany... Yes, in the 1930s, they found themselves being exploited by the Nazis. But it's difficult not to conclude that like arms manufacturers everywhere, they went on working for the military, indeed working harder and harder for the German military, because they were making millions in profit. OK, they couldn't get the cash out of Germany, but everybody assumed that was a short-term problem. Meanwhile, if making money meant collaborating with the Nazis, then so be it. Mm, collaborating. 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 That's yeah. a big word. It suggests that these companies worked for the Nazis despite being aware that what they were doing was immoral. Well, that's something perhaps we need to unpack a bit. First up, let's not kid ourselves. People in Britain and America were perfectly well aware of the atrocities being committed by the Nazis in the 1930s. Nobody could say they didn't know. Berlin Quakers visited the concentration camps the Nazis had quickly established and they reported what they found. Historian Stephen Norwood has shown that as early as 1934, just a year into the Third Reich, there were American lectures and books detailing the torture and the rape that was going on in the camps. And we all know that there was talk of boycotting the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Well, there must have been a reason people were talking about it. In July 1937, an international Christian conference in London drew 300 delegates from 40 countries the well-known German pastor Martin Niemöller had just been arrested by the Nazis and the conference heard plenty of evidence of what else was happening in Hitler's Third Reich. Now notice this. One of those who attended the conference was the nominally Presbyterian Foster Dulles, the lawyer from New York. We've he heard a lot of, all this money we've out heard a lot of about Germany. him. And Dulles, as we have seen, was extremely well-connected in one way or another to plenty of the American businesses that continued to work in Germany. The fact was that those businesses knew perfectly well what the Nazis were doing. In 1936, James Mooney, head of General Motors in Europe, told a US diplomat, speaking of Germany, quote, there's no reason why we should let our moral indignation over what happens in that country stand in the way of doing business. Our moral indignation. We shouldn't let it, no. The diplomat replied... We can hardly be expected to trade with a country only so that it can get those articles which it intends to use against the peace of the world. 
Everybody was aware they had a choice between money or moral duty, between profit and peace. A striking number of American companies seemed to have chosen money, even if it meant war. Total war. One central explanation for the Third Reich's astonishing ability to arm itself despite the stark statistics of recession and financial crisis is that powerful American companies saw Nazi Germany as a way to a quick and substantial profit. It was complicated because economics minister Schacht's skillful manipulation of policies made getting out of Germany difficult, but there seems little doubt that the Americans made the extremely profitable best of a bad job. That's certainly what they said, as we've seen. Well, can we call this collaboration? Historians Gerald Feldman and Wolfgang Siebel have suggested that we have to think about the situation in a more sophisticated way. Nazi administration was notoriously chaotic, often led along by tin-pot local enthusiasts. Businesses were also afraid of brown-shirted mobs and popular boycotts. The result was that many businesses, German businesses, American businesses, businesses from other countries, fell into a pattern of what Feldman and Siebel have called obedience in advance. They would anticipate the next twist in the Nazis' appalling policies. That way you could win some room for manoeuvre. A study of Norton, the American adhesives maker, found, for example, that its German managers dutifully signed up to the Nazi party, but were as inactive as possible without raising suspicion. Well, it was the best way to be left alone. So perhaps we have to see past the sort of binary for and against the Nazis. Most Germans, most of us, frankly, if we were in the same position, wouldn't collaborate. But except for the far-sighted and courageous few, most might perhaps accommodate themselves in some way or another to what was going on. Well, that might be true for the Germans who ran American subsidiaries, but as for their American bosses, enjoying the view through the cigar smoke from spacious offices in uh, Rockefeller Plaza... What was going on looks very much like what the Americans had done from 1914 to 1917, which was that while politicians and moralists denounced the European carnage, American bankers and businesses fell over themselves to make as much money out of the First World War as they could. Well, look, we should be clear what all this means. The Germans could never have gone to war were it not for the support they got from these American companies. As early as June 1934, that's just over a year into the Nazi regime, an American banker, formerly a diplomat at the Berlin embassy, calculated that Germany was importing 80% of its iron ore, over 90% of its wool, and all of its copper, rubber and cotton. The Germans, with American help, were trying to make synthetic replacements. But it was never nearly enough. As we've seen, American companies, in fact, became the conduits through which these materials found their way into Germany and then into its military hardware. So you see, without these raw materials, let alone the foreign finance that was still propping it up, the Nazi war machine was simply dead in its tracks. Hitler would not have been able to send his armed forces into the rest of Europe. He might even have been out of power in months. At one level, it was American businessmen who put the whole Nazi project literally on the road and kept it there. And made war possible. By the end of 1938, Hitler had annexed Austria and much of Czechoslovakia. The Washington government of Franklin Roosevelt had openly come out against any more rearmament 
in Europe. But in Berlin, the commercial attaché at the US embassy reported that American banks were still looking to make new loans there in Nazi Germany. As historian Neil Forbes discovered, when the matter was raised with the banker's regulator, the Washington Federal Reserve Board, it responded that, well, so long as German credit was signed, we couldn't see what the problem was. Winthrop Aldrich, president of the enormous Chase Manhattan Bank, was reported as saying that, quotes, as much as everyone disliked the things going on in Germany, just note that, as much as everyone disliked the things going on in Germany, they knew all about it. America, he said, had still to do business there. Well, of course, the Americans absolutely did not have to do anything of the kind. They didn't have to stay, but it sure suited the American money men if they did. So the disgraceful collaboration of American firms in enabling Hitler to go to war isn't difficult to explain. Perhaps we can use the word collaboration. They knew what was happening, but they looked the other way. The Second World War only came about because finances and businessmen were making a fortune from rearming the Germans. But that is not the end of the story. It gets worse. You remember Moffat, US corn. You remember he preferred to do business in Nazi Germany than in democratic America. Well, he wasn't the only one who had more than a passing interest in the whole Nazi project. You mean he was sympathetic? Well, let's leave aside the more lurid and impossible to prove accusations that circulate in blogs and online articles, many of them deriving ultimately from Charles Heim's book. As we saw, it's well known that Henry Ford, for example, was notoriously publicly anti-Semitic. He published a series of 90 articles early in the 1920s entitled, quotes, International Jew, the World's Foremost Problem. That's Henry Ford. Hitler read Ford's articles in translation and seems to have pasted sections of them into Mein Kampf, which he wrote in prison in 1924. He kept Ford's portrait by his desk. At the very least, you have to say that Ford had no qualms about dealing with the Nazis. But then there's also John D. Rockefeller. Yeah, who owns Standard Oil. And he was among the richest men in the world. Now, he ran a foundation that supported deserving causes. But among the causes that Rockefeller considered deserving was the Eugenics Record Office at Cold Spring Harbour on Long Island. Rockefeller was, in fact, its main sponsor. Well, the Eugenics Record Office conducted research into, well, you guessed, eugenics, which was a pseudoscience that was popular at the end of the 19th century and up to the Second World War. It was based on a distorted interpretation of Charles Darwin. It was based on the belief that only the fittest human races could survive. Of course, scientifically, there's only one human race. But eugenicists believe that there were many human races and that they were somehow doomed to compete with each other to the death. Well, it led logically, for example, to the compulsory sterilisation of the weakest in society and the extermination of competing peoples, notably the Jews. Harry Lochlin, Managing Director of the Eugenics Record Office... And that's Rockefeller's Eugenics Record Office. ...told a friend that he was thrilled with Hitler's speeches. Hitler's programme of rearmament was made possible by American companies that, like arms dealers in every age, ignored the moral issues and made as much money as possible. But for some of them, it was more. Some were at least sympathetic to the doctrines the Nazis were preaching. Research produced by the Rockefeller-sponsored Eugenics Record Office at Cold Spring Harbour on Long Island was directly used 
by the Nazis to frame their anti-Semitic laws and to launch their own campaign to sterilise those they considered to have mental illness. In fact, in 1933, that's the year that Hitler came to power, Rockefeller himself gave the Munich Institute for Psychiatric Research a generous 10-year grant. Now look, the Munich Institute for Psychiatric Research was the centre of German eugenics and Munich was the home of the Nazis. And in case we want to think that Rockefeller's grant was somehow an excusable lapse, he'd already funded several other German academic institutes engaged in eugenic research and would go on to fund more throughout the 1930s. So you can imagine Rockefeller having no moral difficulty doing business with the Nazis. What historians don't seem to have noticed is that Foster Dulles, the lawyer we keep coming across, was on the executive committee of the Rockefeller Foundation, which was funding the eugenics record office at Cold Spring Harbour, the office that was producing the research that the Nazis were using to frame their anti-Semitic laws and to justify sterilising the most vulnerable in society. Now, Dulles was, as we've discovered, enmeshed with a long list of American companies that had invested in Germany. In 1928, Dulles moved house. And where did he go? He went to Cold Spring Harbour. Long Island. Next door, in other words, to Rockefeller's eugenics record office. Researching his recent biography of Dulles, John Wilsey was surprised to come across a previously unknown photograph in the Princeton archives. It's of Foster Dulles. And he is chatting with... Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler. It was apparently taken in June 1933, very shortly after Hitler had become Chancellor of Germany. Hitler, says Wilsey, is grinning broadly. Clearly, Dulles, later voted the most boring man in America, was very happy to amuse the Führer. Another was Charles Bedeau. He'd arrived in the States virtually penniless from France, but had made himself a millionaire with a time and motion method for extracting the maximum labour from employees. Although his method provoked strikes in the States, Britain and Italy, Beddoe sold it to Ford Motor Company, General Motors, ITT, Standard Oil, Sterling Oil and others of the companies we've been looking at. Beddoe became a personal friend of Walter Teagle, now he was president of Standard Oil, and of Hermann Schmitz, the financial advisor of the German chemical giant IG Farben, and perhaps others too. In 1927... Beddo bought himself the wonderfully expensive Chateau Condé, a few miles south of Tours in France. And it was there, ten years later, that he entertained the recently abdicated King Edward VIII of England, who was now just a mere Duke of Windsor, and his notorious fiancée, Wallace Simpson. And it was at Beddo's chateau in May 1937 that Windsor and Simpson married. We tell the story in our podcast, The King, His Wife, Their Führer, the lobster, and the clue is in the title. I love that. Bedo then made arrangements for the Windsors, the happy couple, to go on honeymoon to Nazi Germany. To Nazi Germany. Now, modern management consultants have tried to revive Bedo's reputation. If not necessarily his management style, which after all seems to have caused strikes wherever it went. They've tried to minimise his contacts with the Third Reich. But in 2018, Saunders the Auctioneers sold a letter that had been found at Bedo's Chateau. It's dated 7th of September 1937. And you can find it on the internet, in fact, if you look. And it's headed... Der Führer und Kanzler Deutschen Reichs Adjutante. Excuse the German. From the Adjutant to the Führer and Chancellor of the German Reich. That in other was... words, it came from Hitler's personal adjutant, Fritz Wiedemann. 
and it gives a detailed itinerary for the Windsors and their honeymoon and asks Beto to discuss it with them. We know that the Windsors went on to meet Hitler's foreign minister, Ribbentrop. With whom Simpson was rumoured to have been having an affair. They also met Goering, Goebbels and, at his mountain retreat, Hitler himself. The next year, Wiedemann appointed Beddow head of commercial operations at Nazi Germany's biggest company, IG Farben. That went on to make the gas for the gas chambers. Beddow's career after war broke out is even more controversial. Now, the management consultant version is that Beddow worked with the French resistance to sabotage factories and rescue Jews. The other version is that when the Germans invaded France in 1940, it was Charles Bedeau they put in charge, not only of factories seized from French Jews, but also of American property in the occupied territory. And that included, for example, Chase Bank in Paris, which stayed open throughout the war, and Ford France in Poissy. What we know for certain is that Bedeau would be arrested in North Africa in December 1942 as a German collaborator and that in February 1944, he committed suicide in a Miami prison, awaiting trial for treason by the Americans. Well, maybe it was just that Beddoes sailed closer to the wind than others did, or maybe he just got found out. What his career, however, does seem to confirm is that the men we've seen running the American companies that invested in Germany were not at all choosy about the company they kept. So we can therefore say that among the American businessmen who did deals in Germany, there seems to be at least a whiff of sympathy with the Nazis. In 1936, the American ambassador in Berlin, William Dodd, apparently wrote to President Roosevelt, there is, he said, quote, a clique of US industrialists that is hell-bent to bring a fascist state to supplant our democratic government and is working closely with the fascist regime in Germany and Italy. I have had plenty of opportunity in my post in Berlin to witness how close some of our American ruling families are to the Nazi regime. Well, could Dodd have been right? Or was he mad? Well, we'll find out next time at the History Cafe. There are nearly a hundred podcasts at the History Cafe, all of them still as new as the day they were recorded. Go to our website, historycafe.org, and you can get a rundown on the research we've done and plenty of leads to follow if you still want more. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every other platform you can think of. Just look out for History Cafe Podcast with John and Penelope. If it's your thing, follow us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter at History Cafe Pod. And ask your friends to join us too. (laughs) We'll be right back.